Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto but can be streamed from anywhere, and it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzili November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. The 2022 Vilcek Prizes for Creative Promise in Dance go to Tatiana Desarduen from Switzerland, to Misha Guy from Trinidad and Tobago, and Leonardo Sandoval from Brazil. The Vilcek Foundation raises awareness of immigrant contributions to the United States and fosters appreciation for the arts and sciences. Learn more about Tatiana, Tamisha, and Leonardo at Vilcek, that's V-I-L-C-E-K, dot co slash dance edit. friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm amy brandt we are editors at dance media and i'm so glad that we have our resident ballet expert amy here this week because there is a lot of ballet world stuff going on to discuss so in today's episode we'll talk first of all about the soaring highs and kind of messy lows of the long delayed tony awards which finally happened on sunday night We will discuss a crisis that's happening in Arkansas, where the University of Arkansas at Little Rock recently eliminated the state's only college dance degree program. And we will review the Amazon ballet thriller Birds of Paradise, which features the work of some very talented dance artists, but also plays into troubling and persistent stereotypes about the ballet world. Uh, Before all of that, though, we have some exciting news of our own. There is a new episode of the Dance Edit Extra coming out this Saturday, October 2nd, as in two days from the day you're hearing this. So this third episode features the lovely and perpetually curious dance artist Garen Scribner. You might know him from San Francisco Ballet or from Broadway or from the PBS show Broadway Sandwich or from the smart and funny dance video shorts he made during the pandemic or all of the above. Um, Garen is actually now at Harvard pursuing his master's in public administration, and he's hoping to translate all of his varied experiences into a new career in ethics and policy-oriented arts leadership. It's a great conversation. I mean, Garen literally hosts shows on PBS, so he knows how to do an interview. We hope you'll subscribe to the Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts so that Garen's interview will just pop right up in your feed on Saturday. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Here we go. This week's premiere of Fire Shut Up in My Bones at the Metropolitan Opera was one for the history books. Co-director and choreographer Camille A. Brown became the Met's first Black main stage director, and Terrence Blanchard its first Black opera composer in its 138-year history. The opera is based on the memoir of the same name by New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow, And if you haven't seen what I'm seeing online, it looks like an incredible production. Um, So make sure you check out some of the Met's video footage on social media. There seems to be a lot of dancing and movement. And uh, there's an especially great fraternity step routine. Oh, my gosh. The step (laughs) routine. Yeah. Please go look it up. I mean, huge congrats to Camille. That production has been getting rave reviews. It's such a great way to reopen the Met. Yeah. 
In dance TV news, Dancing with the Stars is unfortunately dealing with its first COVID case. So on Sunday night, just before the second episode of the season was scheduled to tape, pro dancer Cheryl Burke announced that she had tested positive with a breakthrough infection. And she's not actually out of the competition yet. Um, So in Monday's episode, the judges ended up evaluating pre-taped rehearsal footage of Burke and her partner Cody Rigsby doing their salsa routine. There's no word yet on how or if the pair is going to compete in this Monday's episode, but at least both of them are vaccinated, so hopefully everyone will be okay. I mean, I guess it was only a matter of time before this happened. Yeah. I know. I've been wondering how they were going to handle that. Yeah. A court has ruled that avant-garde Belgian choreographer Jan Faber will stand trial next year for charges of sexual harassment and indecent assault. Just to recap, in 2018, 20 dancers signed a letter alleging they had suffered sexual harassment and humiliation while working for him. He has defended his actions, saying he did not intend to intimidate or hurt people psychologically or sexually, but prosecutors have referred the case for trial, which should be held in March or April. Oh, bringing it back around to happy news now, the MacArthur Foundation announced the 2021 group of MacArthur Fellows, aka Genius Grant recipients, and this year's list of geniuses includes choreographer and educator and Urban Bushwoman founder, Joole Willa Zoller, who, my goodness, could not be more deserving. Um, the fellowship comes with a $625,000 stipend, some very real money, And Zoller is, of course, also the recipient of this year's Dance Teacher Award of Distinction. So it's a banner year for her following decades of visionary work. Yes, long overdue, I'd say. Yeah. Dance NYC's upcoming Redefining Practice Town Hall series will explore ways dance artists and groups are prioritizing racial justice, safety, and community care. It includes a variety of dialogues from discussions among Asian American choreographers to those centered on returning to the studio with more awareness of physical, emotional, and mental well-being. The five-part series will mostly be held online, but there is one in-person session, and they are free and open to the public, although registration is required, so make sure to head to their website for that. Yeah, we'll include the link in the show notes with more information about the whole series. The acclaimed online show Black Dance Stories is back this fall with a new series called Power Half Hour, and it looks at how emerging Black artists are shaping both their own careers and the larger industry. So new episodes actually started airing this past Monday, and they'll continue through December 27th with featured guests including Brooke Rucker, Johnny Cruz Mercer, Courtney Taylor Key, and Dre Drummond. And each of those artists will also be paired with an established dance artist who will serve as a mentor over the course of six months. So a great initiative all around. Um, You can watch the episodes and find out more about the series on the Black Dance Stories Instagram account, which is at Black Dance Stories. And we have also linked that in the show notes for you. Maria Mendiola, who began as a ballet dancer before breaking out as one half of the chart-topping disco duo Bacara, has died at age 69. Yes, Sir, I Can Boogie was their big hit, and it was the first song the pair ever even recorded. She was first a ballet dancer with Spain's national television broadcast company before she uh, started her music Mm -hmm. career. So sad loss there. And we have a piece of late breaking news to add here, and it is not good. New sexual assault allegations have been filed against ballet star Dusty Button and her husband, Mitchell Taylor Button. They expand on the original suit brought this summer by dancer Sage Humphreys and Gina Minocino. 
the new filing adds three new plaintiffs and explicitly names Dusty as a defendant. Only Mitchell Button was a defendant initially. Now Dusty is also named. Uh, The allegations in it are harrowing. They're similar in many ways to the allegations made by Humphreys and Minichino initially. We will link to the Boston Globe's coverage of the suit in the show notes. Very disturbing stuff. So for our first longer segment today, we need to talk about the Tony Awards, which aired on Sunday night. And actually, I feel like I'm still recovering a little from the Tony Awards. They first of all, they happened over the course of four hours on multiple platforms. We went from a stream show on Paramount Plus, where most of the awards are presented to the big Broadway's back special on live network TV that had most of the performances. And after such a long delay, because remember, this was actually the ceremony recognizing the best shows of the abbreviated 2019-2020 season. After that long delay, and after all of the losses of the pandemic, it felt like this broadcast was trying to do everything. It wanted to be celebratory. It wanted to be mournful. It wanted to put on a show. And there were some moments, including some really beautiful dance tributes that really hit home. But there were also some that did not do as well. There was a whole lot of eyebrow raising and actually worse happening on Twitter. So let's talk about all of it. Um, I have to say, I I did find the setup a little confusing with part of it on Paramount Mm -hmm. Plus, which I don't have, and then part of it on CBS. And it's my understanding that most of the awards were given out during the streamed portion of the show. Mm -hmm. Because when I tuned in, I wasn't even a really aware that it was the Tony Awards. I thought it was like a tribute to Broadway. Um, <laughs> and then kind of out of nowhere, they suddenly gave out an award. I thought, oh, this is, this is the Tonys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a complaint that I was reading a lot was that not only was the way it was presented confusing with the different platforms, but also there was relatively little effective promotion in the lead up to it. There's mm-hmm. just relatively little awareness that this was happening. And after such a long time, it's like, You had all those months to get your act together. We all should have known that this was going on. Well, and it also made me wonder, and it could be because they just wanted to include so much in it, but it also kind of made me wonder, like, well, why why is this being streamed on a platform that isn't as accessible as, like, CBS, you know, Mm -hmm. the the bulk of the awards? Is it saying something about, like, oh, people don't care about the Tonys enough, or were they just trying to promote their new streaming platform (laughs) and get, you know, people to sign up? I'm not sure. But, you know, it was kind of a bummer because best choreography was part of the streamed portion. And so Hmm. I had to look up who won later. I know. I mean, usually we at least get the best choreography, not in like the main telecast, but like right after the commercial break, they show you the recorded thing that happened during the commercial break Mm -hmm. of the choreographer getting the award. At least it shows up somewhere on network TV. Not this time. Um, Sonia Taye's win from Moulin Rouge, by the way, was epic there. It's kind of bananas that even with such a small group of eligible musicals, that choreography category was so stacked. Like yeah. you had City Larby for Jagged Little Pill, mm-hmm. you had Anthony Van Lass for Tina Turner musical. It was, I mean, and I think the prize went to the right person. I thought her choreography for Moulin Rouge was brilliant. Um, I wanted to talk about what I thought was the most significant dance performance of the night, which was the segment honoring the Broadway Advocacy Coalition's work for racial justice in the industry. And it featured Jared Grimes and Daniel J. Watts 
starting out with this like high octane flash tap mm -hmm. routine that pretty directly referenced the Nicholas Brothers, mm -hmm. like tuxes, spats, jump splits, splits, all of it. Yeah. And then the music stopped and the tux jackets came off and Watts started this impassioned spoken word number that straight up asked, what does your silence sound like? While Grimes kept tapping in the background, but suddenly that tapping felt very different. Mm -hmm. It almost, one critic said it sounded like gunshots, mm -hmm. which was exactly right. And the moment was especially poignant because it came after Slave Play, which had come into the night with 12 nominations, had been completely shut out. It won nothing. Mm -hmm. I was surprised about that. Yeah, I think a lot of people were. There was sort of, there was a lot of chatter online about how the show had a ton of commentary about the industry's racial reckoning, but the actual winner's list looked pretty much the way it always has, predominantly white. And I think there was also criticism about the broadcast not making more direct reference to some other Broadway problems that have been very much on people's minds, like Karen Olivo's recent statements about unhealthy body expectations in the industry and about how little power the artists of Broadway actually have that wasn't referenced anywhere. The controversy about trans representation and work conditions at Jagged Little Pill, that was all over social media in the lead up to the Tonys, but almost nowhere in the ceremony itself. Mm -hmm. I think Lauren Patton mentioned, kind of referenced it a little bit in her acceptance speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the only way it got in. Right. Um, oh, did you want to say anything about Robbie dancing for Anne Ranking? Oh, that was beautiful. You know, it made me kind of wish that the majority of the tribute section had been done in dance form. I don't know. It was just, yeah, it was so reverential, like the, you know, just, and it's interesting because I didn't know it was Robbie Fairchild at the time when I was watching it, but I was wondering if it was, you know, as uh -huh. I was watching him perform, but it was just such a nice, like tribute to the Fosse style and to rankings legacy. And then at the very end, he like turns and like, gives a bow that as her picture awesome. kind of comes down on the on the curtain. It was just really touching. Oh, I'm with you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they had an entire in memoriam segment done through dance? Yeah. That would that could be so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I think pretty much every Tony's broadcast is like a little bit heavy on its feet because it's trying to coordinate all these big, slow moving Broadway machines. But I don't know. Whatever our other thoughts, bravo to all the dance people who Nailed it, mm -hmm. as they pretty much always do. The dancing itself was great. Yeah, especially uh, Adrienne Warren uh, in her Tina Turner. Oh my gosh, medley there. <laughs> Brought oh, she does the that house down eight times a week. Like blows my mind. I know, quite a workout. Yeah. So in our second segment today, we want to talk about the recent elimination of the dance major at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, which. This might, might sound like just one more pandemic casualty story, not that that makes it less sad, but the stakes here are actually higher because that program was the only college dance degree program in the entire state. And Dance Teacher did some great coverage of this situation back in the spring of 2020 when the elimination of the degree program was first proposed. The actual official approval of the cut happened at a board of trustees meeting earlier this month. And then last week, a story in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette talked about what the fallout has been, and why the loss is so significant. Well, I think first thing, you know, that these young dancers have no in-state college option anymore. Mm -hmm. They're forced to seek out-of-state or private 
colleges, um, mm-hmm. meaning they will have to pay a whole lot more paying out-of-state tuition. Mm-hmm. You know, so that means some dancers who may not be able to afford that will have to think twice about their future and what they want to do with it and what's possible for those that do leave. It, will they come back? It may lead to some creative brain drain if they don't come back to their communities mm-hmm. to open dance studios, to create work, to direct companies, to contribute to the art scene in Little Rock or, Mm -hmm. you know, Arkansas. And this whole thing was part of what they call academic retrenchment or just a wider restructuring Mm -hmm. effort at the school, which apparently has been struggling with, you know, lower enrollment, budget issues, etc. And they determined which programs would be cut based on, you know, the number of graduates, and credit mm-hmm. hours, et cetera. So kind of makes it seem like the dance department wasn't cutting the mustard or something, but that's really isn't how it, how it is yeah. structured at all. So yeah, and that, that was so frustrating, too, is that decreasing enrollment overall at the university has been a problem. But the dance department enrollment has not gone down over time. In fact, it's remained almost constant. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a relatively small segment of the campus population, it's not struggling. Right. <laughs> like that, that is a thriving, was a thriving dance program. And it also, you know, it's just the notion of, of, of dance as a career is this like sort of something not to be taken seriously, that a dance degree mm-hmm. is useless and flimsy. Um, you know, I know mm-hmm. in the past, Arkansas State Senator had kind of publicly ridiculed the program after seeing a billboard mm-hmm. featuring billboard. Uh, University of Arkansas Little Rock Dancer and questioning where the tax dollars were going and why aren't we funding math teachers and STEM. Yeah. yeah. And actually, that, thankfully, that tweet seemed to have gotten a lot of pushback. So mm-hmm. um, I know I love that they actually someone set up an, an ironic scholarship in that senator's <laughs> name for the dance department. That's great. Yeah, there's a lot of community support for this dance program as well. Yeah. And I think that the dance department itself was was pretty shocked when they found out mm-hmm. that it was on the chopping block. Um, like, I, I think they were maybe expecting some budget cuts. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily like complete elimination. Um, and, yeah. you know, the students really rallied. They put together a petition. They got like 11,000 signatures to save the program. But I don't know. At this point, they're still they're still going to um, let it go. Yeah. I mean, there might be hope. So a former dance professor at the university, uh, Stephanie Tebow, is talking with other schools in the state to see if any of them might be willing to offer a degree in dance. And for what it's worth, University of Arkansas Little Rock actually dropped its dance degree program once before. They killed their dance degree in 1999, then they brought it back 10 years later, and then killed it again. But maybe with enough continued pressure and effort, they will reinstate it one more time. I mean, fingers crossed. Yeah, it's such so. a huge loss. Yeah. All right. Finally today, Amy and I are going to take some long, deep cleansing breaths and talk about birds of paradise. We're going to do it. It's going to be okay. All right. There's been a lot of internet chatter about this new Amazon ballet thriller. And I think it's fair to say that the trailer that came out a few weeks ago gave us both sort of a creeping sense of dread because it definitely seemed to lean hard into all of those like ballet dancers or homicidal sex craze maniacs stereotypes that the entertainment industry just loves to mine for melodrama. But the film does feature the work of some dance artists that we really respect Uh, including choreographer Celia Ralston-Hall and several great real-world ballet dancers who are in the supporting cast. So 
We wanted to actually watch the film before passing judgment. And now we've watched it. And now we are going to pass judgment. (laughs) Point, uh, I should say that Point did a preview of this movie um, where we interviewed the director and the choreographer. And uh, we have gotten quite a bit of pushback on that story. Um, So I think a lot of ballet dancers are really tired of these depictions Mm -hmm. in Hollywood of the sort of cutthroat bunhead with the psychotic teachers and everything being sexualized, over-sexualized. Mm-hmm. So it, I will say I was disappointed. I, you know, I, I thought they really leaned into like ballet's dark side mm-hmm. and um, maybe it's like a film, not for dancers, <laughs> I don't know, for, dancers, for like, <laughs> you know, the general public to watch or, or whatnot. Um, just because there were a lot of things that felt like this sort of fictitious depiction of dance training, which centers around in the mil- movie, it centers around what they call the prize, which is, a contract with the Paris Opera Ballet. And, and, you know, after ballet class, it seemed like the course of the dancer's day was then each of them did a a variation competition style in front of their teachers and then got ranked from first to Mm -hmm. last in a list. And that was posted. And that was like a daily occurrence, which is sort of not really how it happens at all. Amy, you were texting me as we were watching it together in different locations saying if they say the phrase the prize one more time (laughs) and that's when i'm like maybe they're trying to make like a general general audience who isn't familiar with ballet maybe maybe they that's like a term they feel like they'll understand you know i don't know yeah maybe (laughs) like why do they keep saying that (laughs) yeah you know the trailer was very trippy and Based on that trailer, I think I was half expecting this to be a story set in a world that was very obviously not the real world, like mm-hmm. maybe the world of a blatantly unreliable narrator, like in Black Swan, um, which would in theory signal to the audience that, no, this is not how ballet really is. This is a fantasy. Um, although even as, as I say that, I can hear people screaming that like, that was exactly the problem with Black Swan is nobody picked up on all those cues <laughs> and everyone just thought that was what ballet was. But so when it came down to it, the actual Birds of Paradise was far less obviously detached from reality. Like there are some druggy scenes where people are obviously in an altered state of consciousness. But beyond those moments, it's all supposed to be real. And like using the Paris Opera's real name, which, by the way, very curious as to how they got clearance to do all of that. But that certainly added to that effect of like, this is what the ballet world is really like. This is a real company we're talking about. And yeah, like you'd like to hope that most viewers are smart enough to understand that this story is super soaped up, mm-hmm. like this is a soap opera mm-hmm. of a movie. We just keep seeing these soapy ballet stories over and over again, high, tiny, pretty things. Mm-hmm. People just keep making these stories. And I don't know, once the average media consumer sees enough depictions of ballet as a place where everybody's murderously competitive and sex addicted and drug addled and broken like that just inevitably starts to seep into their conception of what ballet is. Yeah, I was dis- uh, one of my biggest disappointments in the film, I will say was was the amount of like drug use that was yeah. in it and how it was not really resolved at the end. Like, I know, it was just sort of like, oh, here's one more cliche to stuff yeah. into the sausage. Yeah. I also found that, you know, on a positive note, I found the dance doubling and how they worked that in to be very impressive mm-hmm. because the two stars, Diane Silvers and Christine Froseth, are not dancers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a few there are a few scenes where they're I think they're being shown from the like the neck up and they're 
supposed to be practicing sautés or something where you're like, oh, wait, girl, you know, keep the chest up, you know, like, <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, they're very clever about how they incorporate the dance doubles in where you can't really um, tell at times, mm-hmm. you know, and I was wondering if it was something where they like they did in Black Swan, where they digitally put pasted faces, Natalie Portman's face on Sarah Lane's body, you know, um, <laughs> It sounds like that is part, at least partly what happened. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. So the dance doubles for this film, um, I want to give them a shout out because they aren't really otherwise shouted out. Diane Silver's dance double, double was Natasha Watson. And uh, Christine Frozeth's was Noemi Verbozzi, who used danced with Stuttgart and I think Dresden Semperoper and also Agalja Sawatsky another dancer there. So perhaps she had two dance doubles. But Noemi's Instagram is pretty interesting. She talks about how they like painted Christine's face onto her face. Mm -hmm. Because there are some scenes where you're like, wait a minute, like, who is that? Is that really her? Or is that? Mm -hmm. They did a pretty good job with that, I thought. I do wish there was more dancing. There really isn't. I mean, there's dancing throughout, but it's very short snippets. It's, we got like 10 it, seconds of Osiel Gunio doing Giselle to the wrong music. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why aren't they using the real Giselle music? That's also very typical of dance films. Have you ever noticed that? They, oh, like, they, yes, like their dancers so are never dancing on the beat. The music is like totally <laughs> random. Yeah, I, I had hoped that there would be a little more dancing to help make up for like some of the cliche storyline. But there are some really like an amazing dancers cast in this movie. Mm-hmm. Solomon Golding, Daniel Camargo. Mm-hmm. Ossiel, Guneo, I mean, like, and we do get to see them dance a little bit here and there, but it would have been nice. But not enough. I know. I know. I also wrote down some things that I did admire about the film, just so I didn't, like, go into a negativity death spiral, as I tend to do. Um, I, Claudia noted this in her piece, too. I did appreciate that they made some effort in terms of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought that Stav Strashko, who is transgender, was kind of fantastic mm-hmm. as the school administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated Eva Lomboy's character, too, who got some very real lines in the script about right. how, as a dancer of color, her body and her dancing are scrutinized mm-hmm. so much more closely than the white dancers are, which it is implied contributes to her bulimia. I wish they dug much further into that because there's much more to explore there. Right. Um, all right. Final Birds of Paradise complaint. Oh, my God. The doorknob buns. <laughs> If you are, in fact, trying to paint a realistic picture of the ballet world, start by getting rid of the damn doorknobs. Sorry. I'll probably cut that. I just couldn't not say it. Oh, God. All right. That is it for us this week. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.